0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So Bon Jovi is about to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and it's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame weekend here on Volume. And I thought it would be a great time to talk to Desmond Child, one of the most successful songwriters of all time. He's written hits in five different decades, including a lot of songs with Bon Jovi, including songs with Aerosmith, Ricky Martin, you name it. And I'm very excited to have him with us right now, I believe. Desmond, are you there?
1: I'm here. Yes, I'm so excited. We're, we're on our way to Cleveland, and uh, my husband and our sons, Roman and Nero, and we're so excited. Um, you know, it just it's one of those things that, you know, working with Bon Jovi, that's the one thing we always talked about. We said, oh, well, someday Bon Jovi's going, going to be in the... Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and now the day has come and so we're just thrilled
0: yeah congratulations I mean the, you're part of this achievement a big part
1: well you know writing you know there's so much that goes into being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame I mean it's the you know the way that Bon Jovi has toured and you know the energy that all of them have put into it all these years, you know, I was just part of songwriting a couple of songs. You know, but um <laughs> sure. you know, uh you know, I consider every member of Bon Jovi my family and um, you know, John Bon Jovi is my son's godfather, so he's the most terrific godfather ever. And so we've always been close to, you know, John's family as well.
0: You've had an amazing career, still have an amazing career, and and, uh, actually a really fascinating life story as well. And maybe we'll be able to get into a little bit of that. Uh, Might as well start with at least the path towards Bon Jovi. And uh, long story short, it actually starts with uh, Paul Stanley and Kiss. He's the one who connected you guys. And you wrote a very great song for Kiss, and uh, ma- maybe we can hear a little bit of that. I was made for loving you.
2: So.
0: Before we jump into Bon Jovi, tell me a little bit about uh, working with Paul Stanley, who I've gotten to spend some time with. is a, a great guy, and he actually had really nice uh, words about you when I, I talked to him for our, our cover story on Kiss. But tell me a little bit about that collaboration.
1: When I was in my group, Desmond Child and Rouge, playing in the clubs of New York, Paul would come to many of our gigs and hang out with us backstage, and eventually said, hey, let's try running a song together um, you know, for kiss. And I said, Oh, well, um, let's try to write a song together for my group too. You know, so he co-wrote a song with me called the fight. Mm. And I um, co-wrote a song with him called I was made for loving you. So I don't know, I think I did better in the deal.
0: (laughs) What do you remember specifically about writing uh, that particular song? I was made for loving you.
1: Well, I had this idea in mind because Desmond Child and Rouge, we, we were kind of two ahead of our time. We were combining dance beats with rock guitars and storylines that song, singer-songwriters would sing, very melodic. And so I, I kind of convinced um, Kiss to do a disco song with guitars, and it was revolutionary and actually changed the course of pop music.
0: For sure, you know not to jump ahead of ourselves, but you you always wanted to uh, be a producer as well, and I think you said that there was a barrier being a gay man that that some, and I'm not talking about Kiss or Bon Jovi or anyone specifically, but that sometimes that was something these bands resisted. It was okay to be the the co writer, but somehow producer was just too much.
1: Yes, I I think that it was more than that. Also, at the labels, it was a boys club of straight guys that you know would pick their friends to work with. And so it was kind of socially, I wasn't really part of that. And so I had to kind of arm twist a little bit to say, okay, well, after I had these, you know, big, big hits co-written with Kiss and Bon Jovi and Aerosmith, uh, people started coming to me and saying, okay, well, we want, you know, to work with you. We want your songs. And so um, I kind of said, okay, well, then I have to be the producer, So then, you know, the people they gave me to produce, Ronnie Spector, Cher, um, Alice Cooper, Meatloaf, they weren't really bands. They were solo artists and they were kind of androgynous. Mm. And uh, the later, you know, Ricky Martin. um, So I've actually produced very few bands. Sometimes I've executive produced on Bon Jovi Records and also Rats record, Detonator. And I produced The Scorpions and The Rasmus, have, as far uh, as bands are concerned. You have
0: a great Ronnie Spector story, which is you were trying to instruct her on singing a certain syllable, and and she had a she had a, a retort to that, if you remember that, that story.
1: I co-wrote a song with Diane Warren and Paul Stanley called Love on a Rooftop, and the song has a million woes in it, like, whoa, whoa, and so when I went in the studio with Ronnie, I was trying to you know, kind of show her how these woes were going. And she got so frustrated, she just snapped and said, don't teach me how to sing a woe. I invented them.
0: <laughs> and she did. She was right.
1: And she did. You know, so I backed off and she sang it great.
0: So Paul Paul, and, and John somehow talked and, and I, Paul recommended you to John Bon Jovi, I guess.
1: There was a European tour and Bon Jovi was uh, opening for KISS. And so they had loved our song "Heaven's on Fire," because they had written a very similar song called um, "In and Out of Love" on the previous album, on the album they were touring at that time. And so it had kind of that kind of a jungle beat kind of thing. And so John, John, you know, said, "Well, you know, what do you think of Desmond Child?" And he said, "He definitely try try him out." So um, I got a call from John bon Jovi and. I went to New Jersey to Richie's house where he still lived with his parents, a little wooden house, and um, it was on the edge of a marsh, and at the end of the marsh, you could see the oil refineries. Like I think it was like toxic wasteland, whatever, and uh, the first day, we, we wrote, You Give Love a Bad Name.
0: The story was that you had that title in your back pocket in case things got slow, in case things got weird, and you ended up pulling it out pretty fast, right?
1: Well, yeah. You know, I literally had it written on a little piece of paper in my back pocket. And so I just, you know, threw it down and I said, let's try this. And uh, it was magic. And from that point on, you know, a kind of wonderful collaboration and brotherhood was born uh, between John and Richie and me, uh, which I treasure.
0: You had the title. You threw it out. And how did John react?
1: Well, you know he you know the the thing was i i started playing a piano riff you know that was kind of similar to billy jean and also to the Eurythmics, these dreams you know dun 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 right yeah and so you know richie said well that sounds like michael jackson or something i said play it on guitar like like just it, just go chunking chun 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 and uh, then it just, it's like magical. So then I, you know, Shot Through the Heart and You're to Blame. And then um, that came from a previous title on their record called Shot Through the Heart. So John pulled that out, and of course the answer was, not we all said at the same time, You Give Love a Bad Name. And it was just magic from there.
0: It's credited to you and John and Richie Sambora. So when you're writing the verses for that song, what, how did that come together? Just since it's the first one, it's, it's worth breaking it down.
1: You know, that song was truly collaborative, you know, 100%, in that, you know, I. You know, we started writing about this kind of bad girl, uh, but it was kind of, you know, You Give Love a Bad Name, you could look at it as tragic, but, you know, the song was meant to be sung with a wink and a smile, which is how he did the video, which just worked out. The irony of that, you know, it was like, yeah, You Give Love a Bad Name, but give me more of it. You know what I'm saying? And so um, all three of us write lyrics, melodies, and um, contribute to the chords. And, you know, it was just one thing after the other. And somebody would say something, and then somebody would say the next line, and the next line, and the next line. And every It was, you just forget time. You're just in your own space, the point of creation. And that's what songs are. They're mm. kind of memories they they can you know songs contain a memory of the point of creation so when anybody hears it around the world somehow they're brought into that little writing room with us they don't even know it but it's true
0: let's hear bon jovi's you give love a bad name co-written with desmond child Desmond, what does it feel like to hear that? Obviously, you hear it all the time, but what what is it uh, triggering you?
1: I just I just still go back to that little basement at Richie's house with this little keyboard they gave me on this rickety old Formica table that had been like you know abandoned down there, and then um, I could hear the buzz of the amps. It was kind of chilly, uh, and um, there was a space heater buzzing as well, and then on the transoms, they were muddy outside. You could see like ankles of people walking. And it was schoolgirls that were just left out, led out of school. They were already fans walking around the house. And they were just used to, I said, who's out there? He said, oh, that's our fans.
0: And I think John's wife wasn't super thrilled about that at the time.
1: Well, you know, they got so big, so fast. Uh, One would have to go to John's house. They moved to this like Uh, Kind of compound at the end of a cul-de-sac. There were always cars and cars of people there. So you know, John would have to kind of lie on the floor of the of the back seat, and then you know, Dorothea, you know, whoever was driving out, like, hello, hi, and then just take off. But they were they started to get wise to it and then started chasing them.
0: I wanted to jump to living on a prayer, which is a full-on classic. It has a Springsteen-y vibe distinctly to the lyrics. Um, how, how conscious was that, or was it ever discussed, that, that we're kind of in the, that other New Jersey territory here in the verses?
1: Well, remember that I had my own group, Desmond Child and Rouge, and, you know, I lived, you know, you know before I came out gay, I, was, I lived with Maria Vidal, and she and I were living together in a little apartment, and she would work in a diner, and they called her Gina, Uh, And and she had like this moniker called Gina Velvet. And so that's where Gina came from. And so in my world, I was just writing about my own experience, you know, a few years before. And, um, you know, I guess John was writing about his life and Richie his, you know. It's like everybody, you know, brings their story to the table. And, um, you know, we weren't thinking about, you know, copying anything or anything. But guess what? That was the sound of the times. Yeah. And, you know, you know, we were playing, you know, with Desmond Child and Rouge, you know, in Red Bank and, you know, all kinds of places in New Jersey. And, you know, it was Southside Johnny. It was, you know, Clarence Clemens, They were all there playing songs and playing their music. You know, it's, it was easy to be influenced by the that style in those times.
0: Well, it's a great point about Southside because I'm from New Jersey, so I'm very attuned to this stuff. Southside Johnny is a a really strong vocal influence on John Bon Jovi, and a lot of people don't know that because they might not know Southside's music. But that and and John did this wonderful thing one summer where he he played rhythm guitar for Southside on an entire tour during the 80s. So that's a real connection there. I don't know how how much that was ever articulated in front of you.
1: No, he he was always talking about him. You know, and so I, I think that the special star that came out of those times before Bon Jovi was Springsteen. Yeah. So, you know, but there was many people writing those styles that didn't make it. You know, it was the sound of New Jersey. And many people call Living on a Prayer the national anthem of New Jersey.
0: (laughs) Tell me about the first seed, the first germ for Living on a Prayer.
1: Well, one of my big influences, um, I was sitting at the piano and Richie always on guitar and John, you know, with the notebooks and, you know, running his hands through his hair. (laughs) The influence for me was the chords, those spooky chords came from Laura Nero.
0: Yeah, and a big influence of, of yours early on, angel. right? She was
1: she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2012, and um, she was a huge influence on me. These spooky kind of chords, and if you listen to her music, you'll 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 understand um, where that kind of haunting, uh, cinematic, place came from.
0: Let's hear a little bit of "Living on a Prayer." And then, Desmond, what uh, what Laura Neera song uh, should we possibly play in a minute? Pick one. Um, <laughs> Especially for the spooky chord aspect. <laughs> uh,
1: I guess, you know, it, some of her, you know, she she started influencing me when I was like 14 years old. Um, when I first heard her music and I said, okay, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. And um, later on, she made uh, an album called Christmas and the Beads of Sweat. And... Um, there's a kind of song there. I think it's called Beads of Sweat that has like those kind of haunting chords. And I I think I was kind of feeling that.
0: Yes. It's track eight on Christmas and the Beads of Sweat for those falling at home. But I love that Desmond, when something so unexpected like Laura Nero could come in and influence a Bon Jovi hit and no one could have ever guessed that. I think that's one of the, the most beautiful things in music actually.
1: Well, that's what we're here to do, you know, um, as songwriters. We're supposed to just give, you know, everything that we've we've got inside us. And, and we have to hope that something original kind of p- comes from our own individual hearts and souls. But, you know, we're always play- paying tribute to those that came before us.
0: So let's hear uh, Laura Nero's Beads of Sweat, which indirectly became an influence on uh, Bon Jovi through Desmond Child well there's certainly high notes so uh, let's let's go a little bit more into living on prayer so uh, tommy used to work on the docks union's been on strike what was the seed for all that how did that all begin
1: well you know when i was living with maria vidal um and you know she was working as a waitress and, and a singing waitress that they called Gina Velvet. I was thinking about those times, which were the most beautiful times, you know, ever. And we we had made two albums on Capitol Records and, and all that kind of stuff. And we were on Saturday Night Live. And didn't, this is the year 1979. And when I first suggested, you know, the storyline, I said, Johnny and Gina, because it had alliteration.
2: Mm.
1: And um, because my real name is John Barrett. So it was kind of like a code for me, Johnny and Gina. And then John said, you know, I can't sing Johnny. They think it's about me. I, huh. I, I can't be singing about me. Oh, right. So Im- immediately, I think somebody snapped and said Tommy. And that's that's where Tommy came about. So it's the story of Tommy and Gina.
0: The chorus melody and that big leap on the O. how did that get there?
1: That, that was Richie. I'll oh yeah! Never forget it. We were saying, "Oh, we're halfway there," and he jumped in. Oh, I'll never forget that, Richie. That was Richie.
0: A song like that. How did you know when it was done?
1: Well, we we wrote it over two sessions, and the fact is that you know John, you know, kind of, um, you know, they demoed it, and um, he wasn't like that warm to it because that wasn't his vision. He wanted to be a much harder rocker. You know, so hmm. he just thought it was too early to sing, you know, kind of sentimental songs like that. And so Richie and I literally got on our hands and knees on the floor and begged him to cut it. And so, you know, I mean, we put maximum pressure on him and he he, he caved and they sang it. And Bruce Fairburn in um, Vancouver, their producer, just did such a spectacular job with you know, all the songs he produced for them. And um, it came to life bigger than I ever thought. You know, on the original demo, right before the last chorus, there was like a big, you know, drum fill, and then it modulated. Right. And I kind of thought, oh, my God, that's so kind of like like showbiz. Like showbizzy or like, you know, kind of, um, you know, Vegasy or whatever. So I, I suggested cutting the measure and making it a measure of three. Right there, so, live for the fight, oh, and not do the, the whole drum fill that was coming. And it just, they spliced it on the demo, and it was like magic. Mm. That, was, that was a fantastic innovation.
0: We were going through some of the early Bon Jovi stuff, and I, I wanted to do, talk about maybe one more song, Bad Medicine. It sounds like you're a big believer in, in title-first writing, right?
1: Yeah, I, I think with, with that song, John had the title Bad Medicine and so then we he just loved just the 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 ambience that that they have and so we had already had the successes of slippery when wet and so we started writing for new jersey that was their next album and um you know it was another one another one of those tongue twisters where it was a lot about you know getting those lyrics to have you know inner rhyming a lot of alliteration and uh you know kind of keeping the tension up And then, um, but the song was a little bit linear, so then I kind of uh, went off on this thing where I changed the, did a modulation for the B section, that's what you get when you fall in love or something, Hmm. and uh, John loved that, and so I think that's what helped the song, you know, not not be so samey, and it kind of lifted everything, And, and it kind of became a little bit signature, you know, kind of to do modulations and stuff
0: the first twist in the lyrics is you know your love is like bad medicine but then you have the the rejoinder bad medicine is what i need was that immediately part of the thing or did it take a while to get there
1: no that that was i think that was john's line like right from the start so the the whole you know what we we try to do is um have irony and stakes in a song so in, in that case it was following sort of the 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 concept of you Give love a bad name it's like yeah, you're bad, but that's how that's why I like you. you right. Know, give me give me your bad medicine. Bad medicine is what I need.
0: When I look at the lyrics, I realize it seems a little bit like it was hard to write because you have to extend this metaphor in verse after verse and it's almost there's almost an element like you said of irony and comedy because you have you have to start with ain't got a fever got a permanent disease it'll take more to the doctor to prescribe a remedy then you got the symptoms and the next verse with no needle and anesthesia <laughs> nurse like it's it's really it's almost like an adventure of, of how far can we drag out this metaphor yeah
1: <laughs> with the you you know the the whole you know like a model in her in her nurse uniform form with the mini skirt you know <laughs> that's like the idea I mean that's sort of like a kind of like one of those naughty movie scenarios totally and um you know it it was like that but but still it's so i think it's well written because it was linear. Yeah, it was like building, and it was building, and then we just kept going and kept going, <laughs> and you know, it just it just worked.
0: It's good writing. It's really, you know, it's it's funny stuff. Uh, well,
1: it's entertaining, and you know, we we were clear that you know, with a song like that, we weren't trying to be you know, the 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 deepest you know artsyish arts artsyish thing that ever you know was. We were just like out there to you know give people a good time but not with like nonsenses that many of the other bands at the time were just singing such shallow songs that really haven't stood the the test of time and where are those bands you know so you know i think that when you're you're uh, an artist is, is singing really great songs that really fit their archetype and and really fit who they are um you know you can just keep having new generations sign up and that's what what happens when you go to a Bon Jovi concert? You see little old ladies with white hair and then you see babies on their parents' shoulders and the babies have like those like airport things, you know, on their, like those headphones, you know, so their ears <laughs> exactly. are, are blasted. But they are there like, you know, asleep on the shoulders of their parents and their parents are standing there rocking out.
0: Let's hear Bad Medicine for a minute. So let's move on to a, a roughly contemporaneous situation when you started working with Aerosmith. Now, how did that collaboration start?
1: Well, because of the success I had with Bon Jovi, I got a call from uh, John Claudner and the a- A&R guy at uh, Geffen Records. And he had two acts, Cher and Aerosmith. And he hired me to work with both. And so there was a song that I think we wrote for uh, New Jersey called. We all sleep alone, and uh, you know John just you know thought it was too slow or whatever. But uh, you know I, I I pitched it to Cher and she loved it. And it was perfect with the female, like the the way we had written it, written it was kind of like gunslinger kind of thing, and so then uh, you know that was a, a big hit for her. And Bon Jovi was the band, so it was fantastic. And that's when Richie met Cher and then, well, the rest is history. With Aerosmith, um, they had never written with an outside writer before, and they had come to Geffen, and they had had a not-so-successful record called Done With Mirrors. Right. And so, um, John Clodner kind of forced me on them, and I was flown to um, Boston, and I showed up at this airplane hangar, where I'm literally on the floor, there were a hundred guitars on stands, all different colors, tiger, uh, you know, zebra, uh, glitter, you know. It was unbelievable. And, you know, they had set up on a stage that was literally a stage. And there was the mic with all the scarves on it and the whole thing and giant, you know, amps. They were writing, like, with giant martial amps. It's crazy. So I I walked in and, uh, you know, Stephen, who's, you know, kind of like a very warm, gregarious person and you know he welcomed me and you know Joe was standoffish kind of looking at me from the side of his eyes, you know. And uh they were working on a track uh that had this reverse guitar thing that sounded like a boogie woogie thing, kinda of like da 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 and they were singing Cruising for the ladies, da 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 Cruisin' for the ladies and the first thing out of my mouth I hadn't worked with him, nothing, I said, um, I think that's really bad, <laughs> and Joe like like his arms got even more crossed, and he's looking at me, and um, you know I said that that kind of sounds like a maybe a like a bad Van Halen song they didn't even put on their record, right? You know it's like what is this? You're in a top down going down Sunset Strip cruising for the ladies. Is that an idea? You know, and so then you know Steven kind of sheepishly said well when i first came up with the riff i was singing dude looks like a lady i said what dude looks like a lady and joe said yeah but we don't know what that means and i said oh i know what that means and um, <laughs> so uh, the the story was that they had gone to a bar and you know on the you know kind of uh, wherever they live you know south of boston on the shore and uh, they had at the end of uh, the bar was this gorgeous platinum mullet, you know, with this curvy waist and white skin and black nails, and they just saw the back of her. And so they were there with their crew, and they were like, "Okay, we're drawing straws, who's going to go up and like say something?" So all of a sudden she turns around, and it's Vince Neil of Motley Crue, and they were like, <laughs> "Oh my god! Oh shit! Oh my god!" You know, and. <laughs> then Stephen immediately starts saying, that dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady. And boom, the riff was born. So it's funny because uh, in Stephen's um, autobiography, he doesn't, like, remember it that way at all.
2: Uh-huh. And,
1: uh, you know, he kind of, like, says, you know, kind of like, um, oh, well, we had the song already written, you know, and Desmond just helped me with a few little words here and there. <laughs> and it's like, then Joe in his autobiography which is being written which was written by David Ritz who's writing my autobiography he says oh well Desmond came up with the hook and it's like no no you, you both of you got it wrong you know so in my autobiography which is called living on a prayer big songs big life hmm. with David Ritz i'm going to set the record straight and who are you going to believe me who are you going to believe me or, you know, a couple of, like, you know, <laughs> rockers the, from the 70s. <laughs> With a lot of mileage.
2: <laughs>
1: well, you know, it, so, it's... Oh, oh, so I just got to add that I told Stephen the actual story because we worked on a song called Red, White & You uh, for his country record. Uh-huh. And he looked at me and he said, Oh, I like your story better. <laughs> it's like, what?
2: <laughs>
0: it's funny because, you know... The line, never judge a book by its cover, or who are you going to love by your lover, that, I think, rescues the song from any kind of un that it might now seem to have. And, and that also feels like a line you wrote. I could be wrong.
1: Well, yeah, because I had been under the mentorship of Bob Crew, who wrote all the songs for the four seasons. And he taught me the art of inner rhyming. So, you know, that whole song's in a rhyme, you know, walked into a bar on the shore, her picture graced the grime on the door. Right. The alliteration of, you know, grace, the grime, and all that kind of stuff, lover, cover. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was meant to be a put-down because later on in the song, he goes, my funky lady, I like it, like it, like it, like that. Yeah. So he's accept- he doesn't run away. He accepts, he accepts because he likes what it looks like,
2: you know. Mm-hmm.
1: And so if that doesn't, you know, say, hey, be whoever you want to be, and I'm open to it, you know, it's totally welcoming of the LGBT, you know, community and, you know, what we stand for and all of that. So I don't know why people make a fuss.
0: One way to see it is you sort of snuck in a you know a pro, uh, a pro trans pro pro LGBT message into like you know an Aerosmith hair rock song, which is a, a very cool thing to have been able to do. So you uh, you continued to collaborate with Aerosmith. You did uh, a crazy is one of them. I mean, for people who were alive in the nineties, that uh, that's one of those songs like you could just could not escape. So what do you remember about that one? Well, it's just song?
1: you know me and 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 Joe and Steven just you know writing and 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 it came out and they had another song very similar called Crying.
0: Yes, I was going to ask you that. It's a little delicate, but they it were is like similar. nearer
1: songs They're, to each other, and yeah. I was scared that my song wasn't going to make it on the record because that one you know was very strong, and you know was ultimately a single for them, and I think Crazy was also. It but, was. Um, it it seemed like they were like. Almost the same song, in a way. Um, (laughs) Absolutely. But the song that I'm, you know, kind of most proud of with Aerosmith is What It Takes.
0: Yeah, tell me about that.
1: Well, Stephen, at that point, was writing, playing drums with a football helmet on that had speakers inside. (laughs) And, you know, Joe was there. I was at the piano. And, you know, Stephen started just, you know, kind of uh, improvising. And just they were long threads of ideas and it was all recorded. And then when he went home that evening, I sat with Joe and we edited together all the best bits. And that song is like amazing kind of like tone poem that just keeps going and going and going. That, and I just love it.
0: Yeah, I think that'd be a great karaoke song. It just occurred to me. That's, it's quite, a, it's quite a, like a soul, bravura performance uh, by, by Stephen and a really strong song, yeah. There Goes My Old Girlfriend, There's Another Diamond Ring. Let's, let's hear a little bit of that one. I haven't heard that one in a long time. So, how much of the, the you know performance histrionics was built into the bones of that song, and how as you guys wrote it, and how much was it was Steve just going nuts?
1: Well, that's just how he sings. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he loves showing his rank. and so those songs were written specifically for his voice.
0: How did the the pieces of that song come together? Because it it really is a great one.
1: You know, like I said, it was it was like a tone poem, and you know, he was just singing you know, kind of yabba-dabba-dabba, this and that. You know, that's why my my nickname for him is Yabba-dabba-doo, you know. (laughs) So I remember once being sort of like back, like, you know, trying to get in backstage at some concert, and he sort of came out and everyone went crazy, and I went, yabba dabba do And he said, Desmond, where's Desmond? (laughs) And and he pulled me out of the crowd, thank God. (laughs) But um, I don't know, we just, you know, just really... Got into it, and then um,
0: I won't do a Stephen Tyler imitation. But the without thinking, you lost everything that was good in your life to the toss of the dice. With that high note, do you remember uh, that that part?
1: Well, you know, when he went to sing it, I wasn't there. Right. It was another song produced by Bruce Fairburn. So, I mean, when I heard the final, it was like I was just knocked out. It was just he really brought the song to life.
0: So I wanted to uh, jump to yet another era. Uh, I wanted to talk about uh, you and Ricky Martin, because, you know, you had a very fruitful collaboration. And I think it it geographically located you into Florida, I think. And and, uh, how did that start?
1: After the Northridge earthquake, my husband Curtis and I, we decided uh, we better get out of here. And so I ran home to Miami Beach, where I grew up, and it's kind of like running home to mommy. It was just a whole new era because I started going to Latin clubs and taking salsa lessons and got back to my Cuban roots. My mother was the Cuban song, songwriter Elena Casals. Yeah. And, you know, I got this opportunity to uh, produce a Latin artist uh, with Ra- Rafael Vigil, and his name is Rosco Martinez. And, and um, during that period of time, I had met Ricky and, and Draco Rosa, and uh, Draco was his producer, and uh, he had written Corin stuff with Casey Porter, and um, they had a big hit in South America called Maria, and it kind of uh, it was it was it was huge there, and at the same time he was on um, in on Broadway uh, in Les Mis because um, Richard J Alexander. My friend, he um, he was, you know, he had put him on Broadway in that show. So everybody was talking about this Ricky Martin, and my manager's wife, uh, Carleen, she was talking about him from General Hospital. So I said, okay, he's really is a star. Let me see if I can figure something out to cross him over to international English language music, and um, I got this inspiration. Kind of like when I convinced Kiss to do disco over, you know, hmm. guitars over disco, the idea of doing arena anthems a la Bon Jovi and Aerosmith, but with Latin music. And so the first thing we tried was the Cup of Life, which was the World Cup anthem for 1998 when uh, Brazil was up against France and, and the, the last game the final game was in france and thank god france won and ricky sang it and two billion people heard the song and uh, it was instant number one in 23 countries and so that was the start and that was the song he sang at the grammys uh... And you know where everyone kind of just like woke up to Ricky Martin. It's like, who is this person? What is this music? And so then Draco and I were co-writing and producing him because Ricky was not really collaborating with us because he was on tour and doing publicity and all that all the time. So we would prepare the songs and he would come in and sing. And so then uh, Ricky's manager asked me to write a bilingual song. Uh, so it took me like three days racking my mind, and Draco and I came up with Livin' La Vida Loca. Mm. And so when we delivered it to the record company, the record company head, Donnie Einer, said, uh, could you write this song in English? And it's like, it is in English. No, people aren't going to get it. It's like, it's all in English, except for like two words, you know and, and and they're ones that people know because i was thinking what words you know does everybody know and because of you know pollo loco you know and it's like that's where i got loco you know and so he actually when they when ricky first came out and the the billboard ad came out it said live and love you the loca and then in big letters underneath it's in parentheses it said live in the crazy life
0: (laughs) right (laughs) had to make that clear in case anyone didn't get it (laughs)
1: exactly how how did the dynamic play out that song you know um really there hadn't been like a pivotal moment like that in latin music since gloria stefan yes you know with her with you know and that was 15 years before And now, you know, and I'm so pleased, Despacito, you know, is the first song to come along to break every barrier the way Livin' La Vida Loca did, you know. And so my my good friends Luis Fonsi and Erika Ender... uh, wrote that song and then they brought Yankee Daddy into it and then Bieber and all this kind of stuff. But um, it just shows that Latin music has staying power. I mean, their song was number one for 37 weeks or something. It's crazy yeah. how big that song was. Never has there been anything. Yeah,
0: Desmond, how yeah. did, uh, how did uh, the dynamic play out that you've always been a, an open and proud gay man, but, but Ricky was at that time, I guess, closeted. How did, how did that play out at all? It must have been an interesting sort of dynamic.
1: Well, you know, he and I never discussed anything about that. Wow. uh, Our working together, never, until until many, many years later. And you see, at that time, he hadn't been out to his family. Wow. And so when he went on the Barbara Walters uh, special, and she started like pinning him down about what, you know, being gay gay and gay and gay and gay, and he was like overwhelmed and uh really shut him down and he was like well you know i think people should love you know whoever they want to love and all this kind of kind of like a kind of (laughs) non-answer and and then at that point it it really shut him down so much that he really just left the scene you know and then decided he was you know he had to come to terms with with everything and then he had children of his own and um Maybe he was inspired by me and Curtis because we had twins also. Yeah. And um, then in 2008, he asked me to come back and produce his coming out record. I mean, I didn't know that's what it was going to be, but um, because we'd never spoken about anything. And then he took me into the, the back part of his house that was overlooking the bay. And we just sat there and he said, how should I come out? Wow. You know, I like, looked at him. I said, Oprah. <laughs> Oprah is our national therapist. You have to come out on Oprah, and so then I got on the plane, and before I touched down in Nashville, because we had already moved to Nashville, he had um, put on his website, you know that he's a proud you know gay man, and it was like, wow, he couldn't even wait. you know he just had to get it out of him, and sure enough, the very first appearance was on Oprah. Uh, where he sang the number one song That we did together called The Best Thing About Me Is You Which was about his kids
0: Yeah I had to cut you off But we're actually out of time I could talk to Desmond Child all day Thanks so much for being here This has been Rolling Stone Music Now We'll be back next week Here on SiriusXM's Volume Channel 106 At 1pm 1 Fridays Eastern Time In the meantime Download us as a podcast Subscribe to us as a podcast And maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes If you can And in the meantime, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.